Church, thank you for being with us this morning. A little different this morning, just simply because of me having to uh, redo this message. So I'm doing it in front of a camera today, and, and part of the reason is, is uh, to clarify those notes and to get them within our time frame. So you guys study on this. We'll be talking about Joseph over the next few weeks. Uh, good to have you with us today. Hey, good morning, church. We're glad you're with us this morning. I've got a message that I'm excited to preach to you about this morning. As we jump in, last week I started a new series. It's called If God Only Knew. Now to say that, it actually sounds blasphemous to say if God only knew because God knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all those big words that I have a hard time saying. That's our God, and he is an incredible God. But there are times in our life, if we're honest, we're wondering if God... God, if you really knew what I was going through, did you really create me for this time, for this purpose in life? Are you really a God who cares specifically about me? Did you really know me before my mother, uh, before I was knit in my mother's womb? God, if that's truly you, I need to know it because I'm wondering at this time if you only knew. You know, God, if you only knew how empty I've been since I lost my spouse, since I lost my child, since I, I lost my loved one. If you only knew how desperate I've been since I lost my job, Lord, how, how I've been with my family, how I've been in my life, how miserable I truly am. God, if you only knew how I want to be heard and yet no one even hears me, I want to be seen and yet no one even sees me. The pain, the emptiness, the hurt, and the loss that I feel, God, truly, if you only knew. And church, I want you to hear something as we go through this, this series. I want you to know that God does know. He knows beyond anything that we could even fathom. He is one who, who when he went to the cross, he hung on Jesus, hung on the cross. And what did he say? say he said these words. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we don't hear God's affirmation now echoing through the clouds. We've heard it before, right? When you read the scriptures, you'll see Jesus when he comes up from his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, and, and, and this, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and a voice from the heavens says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's affirmation for God's Son. And in the same way, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and you've got Peter, James, and John there with him. You've got Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets who are there with Jesus. And he transfigures before them. And, and a voice comes from the heavens again. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he adds an addendum to that. He says, listen to him. Well, when Jesus is on the cross, we don't hear those words of affirmation. Here's why. Because the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that he who knew no sin became sin. In other words, sin didn't just stick to him. Sin didn't just land on him. He became it. And you have to remember something about our God. Our God is fully holy. He's fully divine. And Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And Jesus is God. But this is the, the example he set before all of us, that he became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So this lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, even he might have asked, God, if you only knew how painful, how terrible, and God had to look away as a holy God. You see, what Jesus endured, none of us church will ever have to endure. So when Jesus, uh, before he ascends into the heavens, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, in Matthew chapter 28, what we see in that is that Jesus not only gives us the great commission, but he is telling us at that time that I have been 
where no man will ever have to be. I have gone where no other human will ever have to go. I have been in the very depths of, of death. He took death upon himself and overcame death. He put, he took sin upon himself and overcame that sin. So church, we've got to see this, that there's no place that life will ever take us that Jesus has not been. And that's why he can truly say, and lo, I am with you, that you'll never be alone. You remember Moses, he, he, uh, he tells Joshua and the people as they prepare to go into the promised land, he says, Yahweh, he said, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And he uses that term Yahweh, which is an intimate expression, a God who loves us in, in an intimate way, but also is a God who is over anything and everything of all creation. So this huge, expansive God has a personal uh, purpose for each and every one of us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And of course, Jesus is God. I'm not trying to separate the Trinity other than for us to have an understanding that that God and Jesus, God the Father and God the Jesus, and, and God and Jesus as God, right? That, that we see this, this separation, if you will, between a father and a son for just a moment. And, and it's, and it's an appeal to us so that we can recognize, so that we have the opportunity, church, to, to really have an idea of a father-son relationship in this way, in, in a separation that happens. And today, as we talk about if God only knew, we're going to be talking about that separation, a spiritual separation, but also sometimes a physical separation that happens with us. And so stay with me as we go through this, because it's important that we understand sometimes separation happens not between us and God. He's always with us, but separation happens between us and the world. That, that we are called the called out ones. The ecclesia means to be called out, means to, to be separated, if you will. Holiness, that word means to be set apart. So our God is a God of separation, and yet he doesn't separate from us. He calls us oftentimes through circumstances, through situations, through opportunities, as well as disappointments to separate and remember who our God is is that he is still there with us, that he does know what we're going through, and he completely understands. You know, years ago, I heard Pastor Paul Seipert give a, a great example of the best receivers he's ever seen. The best receivers that he watches on TV and football are those who can, who can create separation, right? Either their cut to the sideline is so sharp that the defensive back can't keep up, and there's a separation where they can catch the ball. And for us to understand God and have a deeper understanding of God, it means that we have to separate or sometimes God himself has to separate us to an extent where we can receive what he has for us in this life. An example through scripture that we'll be talking about over the next two or three weeks, church, is this example of Joseph. Now, let me give you some history here, and, and then we'll go to the Scripture and read this. But you'll see where Joseph has a dad, and his dad is Jacob, the famous one, right? He's also known as Israel. He resides in the land of Canaan. Joseph is only 17 years old in Genesis chapter 37, and he is Jacob, his father's favorite. Because he had, uh, the Scripture gives us a couple of reasons. One is because he had him in his old age. All right, so here is is Jacob. He's older in his old age, and he has a son 
who there's many years between him and the next brother or the next sibling, if you will. Jacob loved him so much that he made this ornate robe to go upon Joseph. It's a coat of many colors, but I want you to hear something, church, that this coat, along with this favoritism, called it a, called, caused a separatism of Jacob and his brothers, Jacob and his family, or Joseph and his brothers, Joseph and his family, and, and possibly even Jacob, because they, they began to say, hey, this is dad's favorite. Does he even see us, right? And so in some ways, they're saying, if my father only knew how I felt, if my father only knew how, how he's separating his youngest son. And, and separation became a part of this story, but I want you to see it's through that separation and it's through Joseph's perseverance in life during that separation that everyone is going to be taken care of through God the Father's provision. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more is what the scripture says. So now here is Jacob who loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And that statement alone already causes separation. It already makes us all feel uncomfortable. When we begin to say, God, do you really know? I mean, this father and this story and how this makes us all feel because here is a favorite. Is it okay to have favorites? Well, let me tell you something. Everybody looks for life to be equal. All of us want fairness in life. We want justice in life. We want, uh, why do they have more than us? And, and even though we shouldn't want what they have, we should want more for them, possibly. We should want to serve them. Uh, let's just be honest, church. We, we, we tend to get jealous, and we, we tend to want life to be equal, and life will never be equal no matter how hard you try to make life equal. Because inequality does separate. There is no doubt. Favoritism does separate. And that's my first point today. Look, we tend to say that's just not fair. But go back and listen to last week's sermon if you need to. I talk about fairness and equality in that, and even inequality there. But if we're honest, we see favoritism played out everywhere. Last year, my son Wade, he joined the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. For their first year, they were not allowed to feel they were not allowed to think. They were not allowed to want. They slept on the cot or on a, or on the floor. They had no first name and they had no privileges. So after his first semester, he comes home for Christmas and, you know, he tells us all about it and he's pretty excited. But then after a month goes by and he's getting ready to go back, he said, I don't want to go back. I have no name. I have no privileges, dad. I have to sleep on the floor or I sleep on a cot. He said, I can't think. I can't feel. So in other words, that means that there's no way they could ever say, hey, I think we should or we shouldn't. You're not allowed to think. He said, I'm not allowed to feel. In other words, I can't say, hey, I feel sick. I feel like we shouldn't. You're not allowed to feel. He'd no longer had a first name. He was Fish House. That was his name. Everybody was equal as far as all the freshman cadets. 
That's just the way it was. And even though it didn't look fair when you looked at all the other cadets who were sophomores, juniors, and seniors and had rank, all of these freshmen, all of this freshman class, all of these freshmen, they were all the same. They were all equal. Well, what do you think the first thing they wanted as soon as they got through their freshman year? Of course, I made him go back, church. I mean, he wasn't going to say. Matter of fact, he said, Dad, why do I have to go back? I'm the only one of my friends from Canyon from high school that dreads going back to school. I mean, I am dreading my second semester. I want to have a name back. I want to have a room. I want to have a bed to sleep in. I want to be able to feel. I want to be able to think. I can't do any of these things. I don't want to go back. I said, you're going back. Wait, I'm not going to give you a choice here. You can't think and you can't feel right now. Not with me. We're going back, right? And, and, and so took him back. And by the time he made it to the end of his freshman year, he was so excited that they had endured that together. All of his band of brothers, if you will, the, the eight or nine of those that were in his core unit that went and suffered through all this together. Now, all of a sudden, at the end of the year, they got a little rank. And as they went into their sophomore year this year, which is, which is starting to finish up, you know, all of a sudden he's got a lot of rank. All of a sudden he was just promoted to an E7. So he's kind of strutting around there, you know, kind of looking good. What's the first thing they wanted after they were all treated equal with no name and no privileges? The first thing they wanted to do was to excel, to separate, to set themselves apart because life is not fair. It is not equal. Look, you believe this too. It wasn't fair for Jacob to treat his son this way, to show favoritism upon Joseph. That's not fair. And it's not fair necessarily for Joseph to put on this coat and separate himself even further from his brothers or his siblings. That's just not fair. But life's not fair. And all of us play favorites. All of us play this inequality or uh, uh, this favoritism game. I'll give you an example. We've got several of you are teachers in here this morning. You know who you are. Lots of teachers, lots of uh, Amarillo High administration, lots of Canyon administration. A lot of you are involved in our educational system. And, and by being a teacher, you can't tell me that sometimes a kid comes in and you go, oh, man, I was hoping he didn't show up today. Or she shows up and you're like, oh, this one really is my favorite. I mean, she's so sweet. She's so kind. She must have a great family. Oh, she's got to have a great life. She's just the one, right? Come on now. And then, you know, you get all those like I was and, and when I was a kid. And I know the teachers dreaded me when I walked in, right? Favoritism's everywhere. Inequality is everywhere. And inequality does separate. And it's okay. It's okay to an extent, right? We raise the bar. If you don't make your grades, you don't pass. That's okay. That means go study harder, right? Who's going to excel? Who's going to push the envelope? Who's willing to work out there? The preachers oftentimes have favorites, right? Because we know when this person walks in the door, we're sitting there going, wow, man, I love this person. They're going to give me some great advice. They're going to pray for me. They're going to encourage me. They're going to ask me. It's just going to be a great time with this one. And then there are those people that come in the door and you go, wow, not now. This is going to take some time, right? It's going to take some energy. It's going to take some effort. We're going to have to minister. And, 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 and it happens, right? We ought to be compassionate for all. And I agree with that. I agree with that. Sometimes compassion takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of things out of us. So we, we have our coaches have their favorites, right? The best players usually get the best places on the team. That's just the way it works. 
right? Their gifts make room for them. And it's the same thing in God's kingdom. Your gift will make room for you. You don't have to be someone else. Know this, they've already been taken, right? And so what I would encourage you is, you know, when coaches look, look for players on the team this past week, we were down at College Station. We happened to be at this uh, little hole in the walls serving hamburgers. And I heard this man referred to as coach. Uh, the servant lady uh, said, can I get you anything else to drink, coach? And got to looking at him, looked him up on our phone. It, was, it happened to be Coach Blair from Texas A&M, coach there of girls basketball for 33 years or something like that, 32 years, and uh, just retired this past year. Uh, and so when he got up to leave, I walked up to him and said, hey, Coach Blair. And he's like, who are you? And I said, my name's Curtis House, and I just wanted to shake your hand and understand you just retired and everything. Well, of course, my son Wade walked up, and it was their final review weekend, and so he introduced himself, and they got to talking, and he talked to him, he talked to Wade about the core and the core leadership program. But one of the things he said that really spoke to to all of us, uh, Allison included, is he said, you know, there's a a girl that I had one time that was in the core that actually came over and to play basketball. Uh, for me. And he said, honestly, she wasn't near as talented. She wasn't tall enough to play division one ball. She, she, she didn't have a lot to offer in a lot of ways, but he said, I put her on the court all the time for one reason. She made every player around her better because of her leadership skills. And he said, she became my favorite. You know, isn't that neat that, that maybe we're not as talented, maybe we're not as tall, maybe we're not as gifted as others, but our Father has a place for us. Life is not equal, it's not fair, but that doesn't mean we're not on the team. It doesn't mean that we're not, we don't have a purpose. And what better team member could there ever be in God's kingdom, the one that would make others better in their walk with Him? Church, we got to hear this this morning, because this is exactly who Joseph is going to uh, play out to be in his life. He's not going to be just a team player. See, his providence that was given to him, the favoritism that was shown for him was actually not to stay with him. It was for his entire family. And in the end, we'll see that. It was in, it was for his entire nation. Jacob, his father, Israel, the entire nation of Israel is going to be blessed through, if you will, Joseph's favoritism. But J- Joseph has to see that that favoritism or that gift set that he's given is not just for him. It's going to have to be provision for many, and he's going to have to grow up in that. You see, life will never be fair. Life will never be equal. The favorites are going to be played, no doubt. People are going to be more gifted. They're going to be more talented. They're going to be more tough. They're going to be more pretty. They're going to be more smart. They're out there, but that doesn't make you invaluable to the team. Joseph was youngest. You have to put yourself for some, you have to look back and and look at tradition in Joseph's day, in Joseph's era. Even in today, in the Middle East, kind of what the youngest represents. Because the youngest was the least of these, if you will. The youngest in in Joseph's day and time, in Jacob's day and time, and even in Jesus' day and time, you'll see this. Uh, It's the reason why the children were rebuked and weren't allowed to come into Jesus' presence. And Jesus says, wait a second, let the little children come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he took the youngest and made them the greatest. But in their tradition, their tradition uh, uh, in Joseph's day and time, he would have been picked on. As a matter of fact, his older siblings, he would have been called to serve each and every one of them. The youngest responsibility was to serve all those who were older. The older's responsibility was to discipline the youngest. So if Joseph had 
all these brothers and, and, and sisters that we haven't heard or read about, all of them had a responsibility to discipline him. He was the youngest. He was the least. But to his dad, he was his favorite. You know, we always hear parents shouldn't favor one kid over another, but uh, uh, is that true? I'm going to tell you something, church, I do. It depends on the task at hand. Now, my love stays the same, but I favor them for different tasks. If I'm going to the nursing home, I'm going to take my daughter, Bethany. Bethany is compassionate. She's kind. She sees the elderly. She sees the weakness. She tries to strengthen them. She'll give them an encouraging word. She will express her love to them. And when I walk into that nursing home, I'll tell you something about Bethany. She's not ashamed to hold her daddy's hand at 18 years old or to put her arm around me. She might even sit in my lap while I'm trying to minister to the elderly. That's Bethany. If I'm going to the farm, I'm going to take Wade and Emma. Here's why. Wade knows how I like things done. And Emma knows how to do them. So Wade can tell Emma he can help me. Wade will get his hands dirty, but Emma's going to get in the middle of it. She's going to get dirty. She's going to get greasy. She's going to work hard because she is a hard worker. It's who she is. I don't love her any more than I love Bethany or than I love Wade. I love them the same, but for the task at hand, I'm going to favor them. Sometimes even for a season. And then you take my youngest, Hadley. Hadley, uh, she loves arts and crafts. And so if I have a project, I'm going to put Hadley on that project because Hadley will work it through. She'll ask me questions. She'll get exactly what I want done in that way. They're all different. They're all gifted, but my love for them is the same. And yes, at times I play favorites depending upon what the needs are. And it's the same thing with a coach. He's going to play favorites depending upon what the needs are to win the game. All right, so don't get upset over that. There are going to be people more talented, more gifted, of course. Don't get accept that separation. In that separation, you're going to hear God reaffirm who you are and reaffirm what your gift set is for his plan, for his purpose, because we're all created for his purposes. Amen. So I took you through a long, long sermon already through uh, just being separate or how favoritism can separate, how inequality oftentimes separates us, but we can't always see that as a bad thing. Then I want to talk to you about how the truth separates. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other avenue. So right there is a dividing, is a demarcation. He's saying, look, my truth is not only going to set you free, but it's going to separate some things. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword that can actually separate mother from daughter, right? He is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Truth will always separate. I want to encourage you, always stand on the truth. Always speak the truth, even though it separates. It's, it's so important that we see this. Joseph, Joseph spoke the truth. The scripture that we just read said that he came back and gave a report, a bad report on his brothers. He spoke the truth probably right there in front of them. They were probably working on the, working for the clock, but he was working for his father. There's a big difference there. He could be trusted to tell his father the truth. I don't know that the brothers could have been. Obviously, somebody had to tell on them because if they were asked, they would probably say, well, you know what? And yeah, I was hanging out down there and, uh, uh, all the sheep were there. I'm pretty sure, Dad, I counted every one of them. You know, I know there's supposed to be 100, but I counted at least 99. You know, you don't know. He, he, so he needed someone that was responsible from a young age to tell the truth. You know, when I grew up, 
Somebody tell on me, I, snitches got stitches. You know what I'm saying? They got stitches. I, this is not a good thing, right? But in Joseph's day and time, it, it could have been even more severe for him. They're much older. They're much stronger. They're much tougher. And they probably beat him a little on the side if you want to know the truth. Because there's probably some truth in that statement. Not that I read it in Scripture, but just assuming through the tradition of their time, right? So Joseph isn't really off to a good start. But there are two things going on here, church, I want you to see. One, he's tending the flocks for his father. And two, his father must trust him enough to tell him the truth. The brothers were probably working for the clock, as I said, but he was working for his father. His father knew knew he could trust this young man. He would tell him, no matter the fallout, you always tell me the truth. Listen, church, the truth of God's love will always separate, just like what we learned about last week. The truth of light and darkness. Truth separated light and darkness. Truth separates the unclean from the clean. Truth separates the sinful from the sinless. Truth separates the holy from the profane. Truth separates evil and good. Truth separates life and death. So this one, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, truly separated life and death. Truth doesn't always make friends. You won't always be popular because you tell the truth. As a matter of fact, as you tell the truth, you're going to be separated a little bit more. And when you are separated, don't say, God, if you only knew. Jesus does know. What does he say? He said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. If they ask for your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Jesus understands this. And he understands the more you speak the truth, the more you stand for the truth, the more it's going to separate. And that's where we have to hear his words. And lo, I am with you. I'm with you. It looks like everyone's deserted you, but I am here for you. You know, truth doesn't always make friends. I mean, where do you get your truth from? Too many of us are looking to CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, Fox. You know, but I I want you to hear this, church. Few like to report the truth over their own agendas. As a matter of fact, the enemy, the devil, always has an agenda to lead people away from the truth. So there's an agenda out there outside of these walls that's looking to lead people away. The agenda is to lead people away from the truth. Truth always has a purpose, and that purpose in Jesus' case is that none would go astray. You know, lies always please the man, but truth will always look to please its father. With truth will come separation. And in that separation, you must not become lonely. You must not think you're out there. You stood up for something and now you're by yourself. No, Jesus is there with you. Now let's go on and talk about the robe for just a minute. Jacob gives Joseph a robe. And this robe of favoritism, no doubt it separates, right? The robe is very symbolic in Scripture. It is a form of passing on. In other words, if a rabbi put his robe on you, it would be symbolic of his wisdom being transferred to you. Many times a passing of the robe, robe would represent the passing on of a legacy, a tradition, a patriarchal manner, if you will, or mannerisms. In Jesus' day, they had royalty robes. A royalty robe was a purple robe that they would place upon kings. And this is why they placed the purple robe upon Jesus just prior to his crucifixion. And they tore it back off, right? It's, it's symbolic. They said, here is the king or here lies the king of the Jews. And as you look at robes, even today, it's amazing to me how people see robes. 
because we have dignitaries with robes on. We have uh, uh, you graduate college with what a robe on, and then you go on and get your master's, and they add to the robe a little bit. Then you go on and get your doctorate, and you have three stripes, and you're strutting around. But listen, in ministry, that robe is known as a vestment, and a vestment robe is one of service. When you see a pastor standing in a black robe, it's to represent a couple of things. One is the darkness represents that they had to overcome. So that black robe is one of servanthood that we die to ourselves. So it's hard to imagine it could represent death, but yes, it can. And that we die to ourselves. The other is it's supposed to represent being the chief servant among the church next to Christ himself. Now, I understand there are albs that are white and other things like that, but for the most part, this robe that we see is a passing on. It has a purpose. It has a distinguishing purpose. And this robe that was placed from Jacob to Joseph on Joseph, it was a form of passing on. It was an identity that was taken taken place in front of his brothers, but in, in front of a nation. Look, in Mark chapter 10, we see a robe starting with verse 46. And this is Jesus, speaking of Jesus. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar uh, named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And they, so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, notice, throwing aside his robe, he jumped up and came to Jesus. You see, he had a beggar's robe. It was an identity robe. What that means is, is that sometimes people would walk by beggars and they would notice, they would see they don't have clothes on. If they gave them a robe, it covered everything up. And these robes were normally brown in color. They were to show dirt or lowliness, if you will. And it was a beggar's robe. And that's how, that's where his identity was found. He was blind. He had been a beggar for years. And then it says, the scripture says, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now, church, I want you to notice something about this, that he threw his cloak before he regained his eyesight. In other words, he found his identity in Christ and then he could see. This is why the world's blind. That's a point that needs to be preached on somewhere at some point in time. If we don't know who we are, we cannot see. But the moment Jesus called him and he stood up, his disciples said, stand up. He's calling for you. He threw aside his cloak. He was no longer, no longer going to be identified as a beggar. From here on, he would be identified as a follower a follower of Jesus. And now from the spiritual being healed, watch this, the physical took place and he can see. Too many people are following the wrong Messiah, if you will. They're following the world. They're following other things other than Jesus and they cannot, they cannot be healed. They cannot be, they, they can't see. They're still running blind. And I love this because once he found his identity in Christ, he threw that aside, said, this is no longer who I am. I followed that man. As we continue on, 
The last point I have is this part of separation. Dreams. Dreams oftentimes separate us, church. I mean, Joseph has this dream, right? Notice what happens to Joseph in verse 6. It says, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave arose and stood up while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. He said, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well, his brothers and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You see, Joseph tells them his dream, and they blame him for it. This is amazing to me. Because we don't control our dreams, church. (laughs) Oftentimes, God just gives us a dream. And when he gives us a dream, we better pay attention to it. Because the dreams that God gives us, that's the hope that God gives us. And so when I have a dream about the church, and when I have a dream about next steps, I've got to hold on to that because the world and the enemy and everything else comes to steal, kill, and destroy that. And even the brothers here, it's amazing to me that Joseph just tells them, I had this dream, and this is what happened in his first dream. And immediately, the scripture says they hated him for it. They didn't try to interpret. They didn't try to help him interpret it. They didn't try to say, hey, this is from God. Let's take a look at this. Let's all pray over this together. What does this mean? You see, church, listen, when we have a dream, a God-given dream, watch this, it's normally not just for us. Joseph's going to wind up having this dream, and he's, it's going to be at some point in time all he has. I'm sure when he's thrown in a pit, which is later on in the story, he'll be thrown in a pit, he'll be beat up, he'll be sold into slavery, he'll go to prison, he'll spend years in prison, he'll move from prison over to uh, being falsely accused, over to watching a friend get his head chopped off. I mean, all these things are going to happen, and at some point in time, he's probably saying, God, if you only knew, you gave me this dream. And that's all that he's got to hold on to. But we never see where Joseph rejects God. We never see it in the story because I don't believe he does. He may have asked the question, God, if you only, this is painful. This is not how I saw this dream being fulfilled. But that fulfillment of his dream was going to be provision, not just for him. But it was going to be provision for his father, for his mother, for his brothers, and for Israel. The very one that would be an enemy among the Egyptians would become second in command through a dream. Look, church, God is trying to give us all a dream. He wants to see his kingdom fulfilled, brought to this earth, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, sometimes dreams will separate us. Sometimes people will look into them and say, you're crazy. That's too big. That's that's too crazy. It's, it's too large. But if it's given by God, I'm telling you what God is asking us to do are two things. One is to steward that dream. The second thing is, is to persevere until you see it come to pass. And it will. So guys, church, I want to encourage you today. Keep dreaming. I want you to understand that God has placed a robe upon you. We find in the prodigal son, right? When, when the prodigal comes back to his father, what does his father do? He says, go kill the fatted lamb. Go, 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 go do these things because we're about to have a celebration. 
And then he says, go get her. He puts his ring on the son's finger and he puts a robe around his son and he puts sandals on his feet and he welcomes him home. Look, God gives us this robe and this robe does separate. But it's a robe that says you are chosen for his purpose. The truth, when we speak the truth, when we know the truth is what sets us free, it sets others free, even though it will separate us by speaking the truth in love. And then understanding that life is not fair, that inequality is going to separate. And sometimes that separation hurts, sometimes that favoritism hurts. But listen, church, it's so important that we learn to embrace it and know that Jesus' words are as true today as when he said, and lo, I'm with you always. Even through the separation, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age.